Mr. Deputy President, uh, Professor Parsons, uh, Professor Marcus, Professor Malaluke, um, members of the academic staff of this university and uh, other universities too, I think, actually, um, and honoured guests. My name is Tim Cohen. I'm your host, I guess you would call me, for this uh, um, esteemed occasion. Um, I'm the very newly appointed editor of the most fantastic journal in South Africa called The Financial Mail. I hope you all read it. Um, I, uh, it's my very pleasant task to introduce two people who really don't need to be introduced. Um, and uh, I, um, I, uh, um, But before I get to that, can I ask um, um, Professor Malaleke just to say a few words of greeting? Honorable Deputy President of the Republic of South Africa, Mr. Halima Mutante, Professor Roy Marcus, Chair of Council of the University of Johannesburg, Professor Raymond Parsons, Extraordinary Professor, Department of Economic and Management Studies, University of Pretoria, members of the Executive Management of the University of Johannesburg, Professor Chilizi Marwala, DVC Research, Professor Angina Parekh, I haven't seen her, uh, DVC Academic, Professor Amanda Dempsey, Executive Dean of the Faculty of Economic and Financial Sciences, other deans, I saw Professor Daniel, I'm not sure if I'm missing any other dean here and Executive Directors, members of the Student Representative Council of the University of Johannesburg, Mr. Program Director, researchers, students, business and political leaders who are present here today. On behalf of the Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Johannesburg, Professor Iron Rensberg, I welcome you all to the University of Johannesburg. Professor Rensberg asked me to convey his delight and gratitude to the Honorable Deputy President of South Africa for visiting our institution and for gracing this occasion with his presence. We wish to acknowledge the work of the Deputy President in peace and bridge building within the troubled mining sector and we wish him strength as he proceeds to work in that area. We are pleased that Jakana Media has chosen our university as the place to launch the updated and still groundbreaking book with the inimitable title, Zumanomics. Few South African researchers in the field of economics can assemble the kind of cast of scholars that Professor Raymond Parsons leads in this revised edited volume. This book could not have come to us at a more opportune time, given the challenges that we face. The scholarship that undergirds the contents of this book, which we launch today, is of the kind that resonates with the values and objectives of the University of Johannesburg, an international university of choice anchored in Africa and determined to shape the future. To this end, 
UJ will not spare any effort in making its own distinctive contribution to, to the shape and future of the South African economy. Already, this university, through its Faculty of Economic and Financial Sciences, is a leader in the training of professionals and the production of knowledge in these fields. UJ stands ready to become a partner to all those who are committed to the deployment of science and scholarship and research in the tackling of the challenges we face together in this country. We want to appreciate the work of Jakana, our Faculty of Economic and Financial Sciences, UJ Library, the DSTNRF Sarchi Chair in African Diplomacy, the incumbent of whom is uh, Professor Lansbeck for working together to make this event a reality. Honorable Deputy President, thanks for raising the stature of this occasion and for helping us realize just how important the economy is. To Professor Raymond Parsons and his co-authors, we say congratulations. And thank you for this repository of knowledge focusing on prospects of Africa's largest economy in the quest to create prosperity for all. We look forward to the conversation and we look forward to reading the book. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Prof. Um, what's, um, uh, for technical reasons, what's going to happen is that both of our speakers are going to sit where they are and, um, and uh, address us from where they are. Um, I just wanted to say that um, we are here to listen to um, a politician and an economist. Um, they are, these of course, different um, professions, different outlooks, different, um, but uh, it does strike me that um, both uh, that Prof Parsons and um, Deputy President Mutlante do share some very uh, significant characteristics. Um, I told Prof Parsons I was going to say that before we, uh, before we came in, and he says he hopes that the Deputy President considers that a compliment, um, but he'll tell us later, I hope. The, um, the, um, I'm going to, I won't, I'm going to dispense, if you don't mind, with the eminent careers of both of the, um, of our speakers. I think we all know that they are um, some of the best that we have in this country. Um, we can take their long and distinguished careers as read. Um, what they share, I, I think, I, if I understand them, um, is, a, is a kind of mentality, um, and it really is the best of what um, we hope to achieve, both at this institution and in, I suppose, in our country as a whole. They are serious, caring, dignified, careful, they are attentive, um, and their approach is um, meticulous and selfless. Um, the, um, uh, it just proves to me that, uh, that people from different vantage points um, uh, can share um, uh, some, of the, some of the greatest characteristics that um, are on offer. Um, I think it's, uh, it's tempting to say that we stand at a crossroads now in South Africa. Um, we, uh, we, um, we like the idea of standing at, uh, of, at crossroads as a, as a sort of dramatic event. We like the idea of, um, of having to make a, of being on the edge of history, of having to make a, um, um, a, a crucial choice. 
Um, but uh, of course, we have stood at hundreds of crossroads in South Africa, and our life, uh, our lives over the past um, two decades, has been a sequence of crossroads. Um, but yet, in another way, I think we do stand at a crossroads now, and that's why I think this um, book of Prof. Parsons is particularly apt and well-timed. Um, we um, we um, um, uh, we for for reasons that he explains very well in the book, um, w- our economy is at a crucial moment, I think, um, and uh, the um, Prof. Parsons in his book talks about the five deficits um, and uh, um, I wondered whether he could elucidate on that topic. Prof. Parsons? Thank you, Tim, and good evening to you all. All protocols observed, but I would like in particular to welcome the Deputy President. Uh, I'm very especially pleased to have him with us here this evening and to share this occasion with me. Over the years, he and I have engaged from time to time on important issues of economic policy, and I've always came away from each engagement with him very impressed by his insights and his wisdom, given the important political roles that he's had to play. I believe, more than ever before, that we are very fortunate to have him in public life in South Africa and to have the benefit of of his leadership. And I am very honored to have him here today on this occasion. I should also perhaps also thank uh, those who helped to to bring the book to to finality and who are acknowledged uh, in, in the preface of the book. I suppose when one is asked, well, how did you approach the subject? I think one tries uh, on a platform like this to combine an intellectual rigor with with readability and accessibility to what is being said. And I rather saw it as an, an inaugural lecture by a professor where he has to have a core rigor, but he realizes he's addressing a larger audience. So hopefully that will be the spirit in, in which you will read the book in which I've tried to marshal the arguments that will persuade rather than confront about what we do next in South Africa. And you will have to decide when you read the book whether I have succeeded or not. Now, the first question I have been asked is, well, why? Why revisit zoonomics? Why has zoonomics revisited been written? And I think I'd like to share with you six main reasons. The first is that the original zoonomics in 2009 was just before the then election, and it did suggest what the national agenda should be for the new government. And in that context, I want to emphasize that this book is not just a sequel. It is an individual, it is an individual analysis not a collective, which which the previous one was. And it just seemed to me that there were a number of developments, both externally and internally, which required to be reassessed in the light of where we now are, not only in a changing global world, but also in terms of domestic uh, and indeed local developments. So 
The second point really flowed from that, that if one surveyed what was happening globally and in South Africa over the past four years, it's quite clear that there were some important domestic, political, economic and social factors that required to be reassessed. And while it is true, of course, that we cannot and have not escaped the impact of what has been happening globally since 2008, the important thing now is to focus on the elements over which we do have control, not to spend too much time debating over those issues which, as interesting as they are to monitor, we cannot actually make a difference. And the recent tectonic shifts in the global economy, of course, have a bigger lesson for us in the sense that we want to be globally competitive and how do we have to adjust our, our strategies in order to ensure that we can, exploit the, we can exploit the changes and the shifts in the markets of the world to the benefit of South Africa. The next point which was important was, of course, the proceedings of the ANC conference at Mangahung in December of last year, which was an, also an important watershed in our public affairs. Then the fact that we will now, of course, again have general elections next year, and the campaign is, is a role in shaping the campaign agenda. Another factor which influenced me was that we were moving towards the 20th anniversary of our democracy since 1994, that we needed to look back on some of our, on some of our achievements, both on the economic and the political front, and what were the gaps that we now had to address? What were the new challenges that were facing us after 20 years? That seemed another important watershed that we needed to be thinking about. And then, of course, with the changes in the global economy and in our domestic economy, there are several what I call red lights flashing about our economic performance at the moment as we seek to grapple with the challenges, with the overarching challenges of unemployment, poverty and, and inequality. Let me just tick a few of them to explain how my mind was concentrated. Firstly, we look at economic growth, it's too low. If we look at unemployment, too high. <coughs> we look at poverty, too high. Delivery, too low. Our exchange rate, too low. Labor unrest, too high. Corruption, too high. And international credit ratings, too low. That kind of mix is what we now need to assess and factor into how do we turn these, these factors around. How do we turn the red lights into amber lights and into green lights over time. Now this challenge that a country falls below its potential, that its, its economic performance falls below its potential, we're not unique in this sense. In fact, some of the role models of the last few years have also run into difficulties at the moment, such as Brazil and, of course, for example, India. But the important test here, to me, it, it seems, is how we create hope and confidence that we are willing and able to identify the solutions and deal with the structural issues that have come to the surface now and which need to be, and which need to be addressed. There are remedies. We are not without remedies. And we have to mobilize those remedies if we want an economy which is going to be stronger, which is going to be bigger, and which is going to be better in the years ahead. 
So what the book really does, it says, well, we are very fortunate. We have now the National Development Plan, which offers us a vision of 2030. And what we need to do if we want an economy by then which is stronger, bigger, and better. Now you may say, well, look, Raymond, that's 17 years. Why should I be worrying about that? Let's put the fires out now and see where we'll be in a few years' time. Well, let me just say to most of the people in this room, if you think that 17 years is a long time, just think how quickly the past 19 years have gone. And we're now on the brink of, of celebrating our 20th birthday of our democracy. How quickly that time has gone. 17 years in the world today is nothing. <coughs> and because it's 17 years, you have to start having to take some tough decisions now. Now, when I talk about the National Development Plan, and I know there have been other plans, so I'm not going to go into that because the time does not permit that. That's, that is the definitive plan on the table at the moment. It has a big advantage over many of the previous plans, of which in the book I assess all the previous, uh, all the previous attempts we've made to address some of these issues more successfully. But the advantage of the National Development Plan is firstly that it is the outcome of an independent but a participative work, a work process through the National Planning Commission, which was appointed by President Zuma in 2010. It builds, it, it doesn't start with a clean sheet of paper. It says, what are we doing here? What are we not doing right? What are we doing right? And how can we create a new platform for 2030? So it builds on some of the existing projects and process. It takes a long view. It says rightly there's too much short-termism in this country. And by that, I'm not only looking at, at, at government, I'm looking at labor, I'm looking at business, even consumers in running up their debt, as they do, are taking a very short-term view. It is a holistic and a realistic roadmap. It seeks to mobilize the whole country. I'll come back to that. And it offers a coherent and a coordinated growth path to 2030, which is what I think we all believe we now need. Now, the good news that flows from the NDP against the challenges we face is that if we are willing to take a longer-term view, not only can we deal with some of those important challenges and some of those red lights that I've been talking about, but by 2030, if we play our cards right, we could have an economy which is nearly three times larger than it is at, at present. In other words, we would be able to have a much higher level of job-rich growth. So if we're prepared to make some commitments to the longer term, we could double our growth rate from its, its present two to two and a half to five and six, which is what the National Development Plan is proposing. And it says to us, if we are willing to tackle our structural challenges in a coherent and a collaborative way, these things are possible. Now, the success of this vision, and that's where the book begins to kick in. Well, what are the conditions for making a success of translating this vision into reality? Well, it's premised on, firstly, all South Africans have to participate. I'll come back to that. Secondly, we have to redress the injustices of the past more effectively. We need faster growth, higher investment and employment, 
We want rising standards of education, a healthy population, and indeed social protection. <coughs> we want to strengthen the links between social and economic change. We want an effective and capable government in regard to, to the delivery context. We want far better collaboration between the private and the public sectors. We want leadership. And finally, from an economic point of view, you in particular want to create an environment for business and investor confidence, all which form part of the red lights that we are dealing with at the moment. Now, you may say, is this a wish list? No, it isn't. It's a blueprint, and it's contained in 500 pages. It is an ambitious program, which is why it needs the maximum support, but it's a necessary one. Now, government has accepted the broad framework of the National Development Plan. This has been reiterated by, by the President more than once, and the government is in the process of aligning its policies with that roadmap. Now, looking through the spectacles of the book of Zoomonomics, what I've sought to do, and in, in talking about the tale of the five of the five deficits, I've really said it's another way to classify the challenges that are being faced by the NDP. My first point is, I personally endorse the National Development Plan. It is the way to go. It is the framework within which we now need to take some important decisions. Secondly, we need to however, analyze what are the conditions for success. It will, its success will not fall like manna from heaven. There will be risks and there will be opportunities which are implicit in the implementation of the NDP. And I want to emphasize the issue of implementation, the urgency of implementation and the need to build the capacity you need, whether it's in government or the private sector, to make it work. And that's really where so many of the previous socioeconomic programs were not successful. If I had to single out three key words in South Africa today, which the average citizen says to me when he talks about or she talks about these things is implementation, implementation, implementation. We want to see this being implemented, want to see outcomes. And so this feeds into the broader environment of how the National Development Plan, if it's implemented on a successful basis and on a, a collaborative basis, can promote a climate of certainty and predictability in policy. I also venture somewhat boldly in one of the chapters to say how could this affect the legacy which President Zuma may want to leave when he steps down in 2019. When a president is re-elected into a second term of office, that's the time when he starts to think, well, what is going to be my legacy? We will then, of course, be about one-third down the way of hopefully implementing the NDP and its vision. And I think he will want to say, these, these are the targets we've been able to reach by 2019. And this is the way in which the implementation of the NDP has made a difference to unemployment, made a difference to poverty, and made a difference to inequality. So I would think that by 2019, I believe that President Zuma would like to say, look, I've begun to turn this economy around. Thanks for the help of, of, of the National Development Plan. Indeed, I would think that perhaps a message that should resonate out 
from from him was the mantra. I mean, when he's seeking to persuade people that this is the way to go, is what is what Bill Clinton said when he won the 1992 election against George Bush Sr. by saying, it's the economy, stupid. That's what you have to get right. And you remember, he won the election and George Bush lost it. Now, how easy is this? Well, the book makes it very clear it's not easy. If you look globally, a handful of countries have succeeded in sustained growth over a long period and done a whole lot of good things with it. It's a, it's a big challenge. And that is why the NDP says you will only achieve that. You will only in achieve that inclusivity if it is a collaborative effort within the country. In other words, the NDP is saying to us, this has to be both top-down and bottom-up if we want to succeed and if we want to mobilize the nation to which I referred earlier. So we should ask the question, if I can borrow it from John Kennedy, ask not what the NDP can do for you, but what can you do for the NDP? Because the phrase, the concept in the NDP is they talk about an active citizenry. That's a very important source of leverage for success. And they are saying you need both the bottom-up and the top-down blades of the scissors to cut the dilemmas that face South Africa. And I try to explore in the book what are the conditions which would ensure that success. So, Deputy President, ladies and gentlemen, what the NDP is providing and what the book says is that unless we have a forward-looking a forward-looking framework like the NDP, we cannot expect that in the next in the next decade or so we can have an economy which is bigger, stronger and better unless we mobilize those elements. We can convert the NDP into a virtuous circle of high growth, democratic governance and social development. We do want a transition to a high-skill, high-productivity, rising-wage economy. It's economically necessary, it's politically desirable. But time is not on our side, and the margin for error has shrunk. I've been asked, does the book give an optimistic prognosis or a pessimistic one for South Africa's future? I suppose the answer must be, that it provides a realistic assessment of our opportunities and risks that lie within the implementation of the latest development plan. No more and no less. You will have to make up your own minds. Hopefully the book might help you to assess the balance there. It does say that it is working together on problems that helps to build trust and build confidence that we are managing to find solutions to the challenges that, that we face, which will have outcomes which will improve the lives of all in the country. And so what we need to do is to build confidence in our future by addressing those challenges in a positive way. That is probably a part of the answer, but I think the other part, the harder part perhaps, is it will require leadership from all sectors, not just from government. Usually when we talk about leadership, we look to the government, but as important as that is, I think it's very important 
that other stakeholders step up to the plate and help to find the compromises that are necessary to make the NDP a success. Because it's clear from what I've said earlier, from the events outside of what's catalogued in the book, that it's not going to be business as usual for anyone in the next few years. Not if we want to make a success of the National Development Plan. So after the election's over, the government, the new team, and the stakeholders will have to apply their minds to it because the road, you know, the subtitle is the road from Angung to 2030. Well, with the best of intentions, it's going to be a bumpy road. But we do need a definitive roadmap to navigate us down that, that road. And finally, may I say this to you all. What is important, if you look at economic history, but I won't burden you with that, if we look at our own history, what comes through is, apart from the structural issues, apart from the strategic issues, apart from the technical issues, you need to get right to make the judgment calls about the future that will get you to 2030 and all the good things you want to have happen. The mindset with which a country approaches its, its challenges is a major factor. And there's, a lot of, there's quite, a lot of, quite a lot of evidence on, on that. And let me quote the following in this context. I am fundamentally an optimist. Whether that comes from nature or nurture, I cannot say. A part of being optimistic is keeping one's head, of keeping one's head pointed towards the sun, one's feet to be moving forward. There were dark, very dark moments when my faith in humanity was sorely tested. But I would not and could not give myself up to despair. That way lies to defeat. Do not judge me by my successes. Judge me by how many times I fell down and got up again. Who said that? It was former President Nelson Mandela, to whom you see I have dedicated the book. That seems to me as good a credo to accept, not only for the book, but on how we must now tackle our expectations about 2030. So my message is, as far as, as, far as 2030 is, bring it on. Thank you. Professor Parsons, thank you very much for that. That was great. Um, um, Mr. Deputy President, right at the end of the book, I don't want to give away the ending, but right at the end of the book, um, Professor Parsons writes this. Um, South Africa needs a new burst of energy and effective leadership to make more things possible. We urgently need to build an economic, uh, a national economic purpose. The battle for the future is now. Without a framework like the NDP at this juncture, we cannot generate an economy that will be bigger, better, um, and stronger by 2010. Would you like to take up that challenge? Uh, thank you very much, uh, team, and uh, as program director. And let me, from the outset, uh, congratulate Professor Parsons for uh, Zoomonomics revisited. <coughs> we are all familiar with the. Uh, first book, Zoomonomics, which was 
in the main sketching out and analyzing the economic landscape of our country uh, in the period between 2008 and uh, leading up to the elections of 2009. Now, I think it's Brandon Sanderson who wrote uh, the following, and I want to quote him uh, when he says, too many scholars think of research as purely a cerebral pursuit. If we do nothing with the knowledge we gain, then we have wasted our study. Books can store information better than we can. What we do that books cannot do is interpret. So if one is a not going to draw conclusions, then one might as well just leave information in, in the text, close quote. So in this regard, uh, Professor Parsons, uh, I found Zoomonomics a pleasant read. Uh, and I think that it's a uh, timing is perfect because those of us who are in government get subsumed in uh, <clears throat> daily tactical issues and, and never really get uh, the time to reflect and, and, and think broadly about uh, the, the, the next steps going forward. And so the, the National Planning Commission, which uh, consisted of uh, a range of talented South Africans uh, in, in the entire uh, commission, only a member of cabinet was Trevor Manuel. Uh, everybody else uh, did not come from government. And so there was no uh, constraint imposed by uh, ministerial or cabinet silos. And, and that is why we believe that uh, the National Development Plan as a guiding framework uh, for advancing uh, the, the economy of our country uh, is well-crafted. And, and of course, uh, it's a tome of uh, over 400 pages, and so it is daunting to uh, those of us who are not uh, <clears throat> used to reading such big books. Uh, and if it is to have its impact as a mobilizing framework, uh, it needs intervention such as uh, Zoomonomics Revisited, which lift the salient points and, and uh, present them in, in, in simple terms that uh, can be uh, absorbed by, by uh, ordinary South Africans. And, and if, uh, as, as professors, more such work were to happen, to break it down into uh, 
simple uh, doables. Uh, it, would, it would go a, a long way towards uh, inspiring uh, the broadest cross-section because what we need is uh, the broadest cross-section of South African population to not only endorse uh, the plan, but to uh, take it and, and uh, allow it to guide their efforts in, in, in their area of work. Now, <clears throat> so in, in, in that regard, uh, Zoomonomics Revisited is, is, is a very important uh, intervention, and, and uh, we, we appreciate uh, Professor Parsons' uh, input in this regard. The The point, however, is it is very difficult to mobilize uh, the available talent in the country if we do not have champions. People tend to be inspired by uh, efforts that are associated with uh, champions. So in this regard, Professor Parsons is one such champion in the area of our political economy, and uh, I believe that uh, this book uh, merits a very special place, and, and uh, we, we <coughs> trust that uh, it will uh, serve to inspire even more debates and discussions, uh, as well as actions because the, the critical point is really uh, in, in implementation of uh, these, uh, uh, this plan and, and what it prescribes for us. This afternoon I had the uh, opportunity to meet with uh, uh, executives of the mining industry and <clears throat> One of the concerns that they raised was that uh, there is very little trust between the South African corporate world and government. But they all admitted that, uh, in fact, we have more interactions these days. The only difficulty is that we meet uh, at the wrong levels because uh, business has uh, its uh, umbrella body, BUSA. Uh, so we meet with business at that level. And of course, the discussions uh, never really lead to uh, concrete actions. And, and so <clears throat> I think one of the uh, important uh, outcomes of today's meeting was that we, we agreed that uh, we would have to meet even at the level of uh, each enterprise to work out how to uh, create favorable conditions for the South African enterprises to grow and thrive uh, in, 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 in today's uh, 
world because there are countless opportunities uh, flowing out of the fact that we are part of uh, an underdeveloped continent uh, which has many, many uh, backlogs and, and, and so <coughs> uh, present countless uh, opportunities. But of course, uh, for, for, for South African companies to be able to play in that space, uh, we need a different uh, form of engagement and conversation uh, at, at the level that uh, would uh, lead to very practical uh, 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 programs. Now, <clears throat> recently, uh, Dr. Mo Ibrahim delivered the Nelson Mandela lecture. And one of the point and points that he raised in, in the lecture was that uh, of education. Uh, the, the, <coughs> the skills that are needed uh, by a modernizing uh, economy such as ours. And, and he made the telling point that, uh, unfortunately, uh, as South Africa, we, we rank very lowly uh, in, in certain indexes when they uh, compare us to uh, other African uh, countries. And, and he attributed that to weaknesses in our education system. Census 2011 also uh, speaks to that point uh, because it essentially says white education or the education of a white child is working fairly well. And the education of an Indian child is also working fairly well. However, the education of the African and colored child is going south. Uh, and, and when we look at that, we, we realize that at great R level, we have between 96 to 98% enrollment. However, only 22% goes through uh, grade 12 into tertiary level. And so it means that uh, the majority of our young people fall by the wayside, uh, even before they uh, go through uh, grade 12. Now that's a, <clears throat> a major, major uh, weakness. How are we going to solve this kind of problem? There are interventions, uh, you know, some by uh, universities, others by uh, corporate companies. Uh, in fact, uh, 
the 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 girl that uh, earned the best marks uh, in the uh, cohort of the grade 12 graduates of, of 2012. Uh, her name is Madikheto Komani. Now, Madikheto means a mother of elections because she was born on the 27th of April, 1994. And so her parents named her after the elections. She comes from Sikukun. Uh, in, a, in a rural village of Kunin Limpopo. But she benefited from a program of uh, a BP, BP South Africa, which uh, supports uh, that school in, in, in the critical subjects of uh, math and science. Now, we will have those kinds of interventions, uh, and they will produce spikes. Uh, which indicate what is possible. Uh, but the system, uh, as I said, census 2011 uh, data actually confirms this, that for the African child, uh, we need a radical approach in order to solve that problem. Many people attribute the problems there at uh, the doorstep of the teacher union, uh, mainly SADU, South African Democratic Teachers Union. But <clears throat> that's not where the uh, dog is buried, so to speak. The, the, the problem can be traced back to what Trevor Huddleston said in 1957 when uh, Bantu education was introduced. Because <clears throat> up to that time, uh, mission schools were <coughs> responsible for education. But <clears throat> government shut them down and, and opened public schools the same time open teacher training colleges to produce a particular caliber of teacher, as Dr. Fairwood spelled out, uh, the purpose of Bantu education. And I think we are sitting with that reality that uh, to reverse that, we need to be deliberate as well, because these interventions are fine but they don't actually correct the system. <clears throat> so to correct the system, we need to uh, do what Dr. Vervur did. Take the same decision, open teacher training colleges, recruit the best teacher training professors, uh, and, and, <clears throat> and invest because it's an investment and give ourselves a timeline of 20, 25 years to uh, produce a new cohort of teachers. If, if, if we don't do that, we will forever uh, be lagging behind, or tailing behind the, the, the gap between ourselves and other developing nations 
uh, would become wider and wider. Uh, it, 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 it requires of us, because we have a plan now, the National Development Plan is a 30-year plan. Uh, if we were to begin now to invest in uh, the uh, teacher training colleges to and aim really to produce a cohort of teachers that would be strong in the, the social sciences as well as natural sciences, mathematics in, and, and IT, so that they can use modern methods of, of, of teaching uh, and, and that way it, we, we, we would be in a position to have 98% enrollment at grade R level. Uh, and if we create the correct streams of uh, uh, subject choices, then one stream would lead to uh, the universities of technology and technicons and vocational training so that uh, people can acquire technical skills. And the other would lead to uh, academic, uh, academia. At the moment, the way it is uh, in the uh, black schools is everyone has to become an academic. Uh, and it is not working. It is not uh, going to produce uh, the requisite skills uh, for the economy. That's uh, one, one uh, point that I think uh, needs to be made so that uh, as, as we uh, try to uh, address the economic bottlenecks, we also understand that uh, in the in the long term, uh, unless we correct this problem in basic education of the African child, uh, this country will forever be struggling uh, because it will leave the bulk or the majority of the people uh, still trapped in uh, lack of skills. Uh, uh, which would then mean we are perpetuating the uh, <clears throat> rationale behind the introduction of Bantu education. But we need to reverse that. And, and what I'm saying is uh, that can only be achieved if we are deliberate about it and determined to do so. Uh, <clears throat> at the, the other points that I think uh, needs to be made uh, <clears throat> is that of uh, prestige, the, the, the necessary prestige which uh, would enable uh, our people to be rallied uh, behind the National Development Plan. Now, prestige comes with, uh, you earn it. Uh, you know, people get to uh, trust leadership and, and they are then willing to rally and follow uh, what leadership suggests. Uh, I'm saying this because <coughs> we, I think we have a deficit uh, because 
uh, early in the year, uh, we were meeting with, uh, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you are all familiar, you are Joe Beckers, you are all familiar with uh, the problems of e-tolling. Uh, now, <coughs> the umbrella body which is opposed to e-tolling is called AUTA. Uh, and earlier in the year, we met with uh, AUTA and all its uh, component parts. <coughs> and so the South African uh, Road Freight Association raised its concerns about e-tolling. It placed those on the table. Uh, and, and as government, we're able to uh, address <coughs> their concerns. Savrala, the South African uh, Car Rental Association, did likewise, <coughs> and their issues were attended to. Uh, the, the workers uh, raised their concerns, uh, so public transport was exempt. Uh, from Italy, buses and taxis. Now, <clears throat> we met with the uh, clergy, the South African uh, Council of Churches, as well as uh, the South African Catholic Bishops Conference. And, and we engaged with them, they raised concerns of uh, their congregants, we uh, responded and, and uh, made concessions and, and eventually they said, well, they are now convinced that uh, they can explain the rationale be behind this e-tolling system. But the South African Catholic Bishops Conference, the bishops accepted and understood uh, the, the spokesperson of the South African Catholic Bishops Conference is a, a father, is a, is a reverend. And after, you know, the bishops had uh, accepted the explanations, for the, 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 the father who is the spokesperson uh, simply said to us, well, you know, we hear you, we've listened to your explanations and concessions, uh, However, we don't trust you. <laughs> and so it became clear that uh, our conversation uh, could no longer uh, take us anywhere. Uh, and of course, he continued to give us uh, pamphlets from his bag. He had pamphlets against <laughs> Italy, so he gave us the pamphlets, uh, which were printed before the engagement. Uh, I'm sharing this with you just to indicate that, uh, uh, you know, a national plan needs champions. And champions can, as Professor Parsons stated, champions can only come from government. Uh, particularly if a whole reverend can say, well, you know, we don't trust you. Uh, to government. So it, it needs champions to come from uh, the, the various sectors of society. Uh, and, and that is why I think 
Professor Parsons' uh, <coughs> book is, is invaluable uh, as, as a lead, and, and it's uh, a lead which we should uh, all try to, to, to emulate. Because our economy uh, is one, and yet there are two parts to it. The one part uh, is, is developed. Uh, it even succeeded to host the FIFA World Cup in 2010. And the other part is underdeveloped. Uh, and in the main services, uh, our people who are on the margins. But in everyday terms, it means that uh, we all have to work very hard to uh, ensure that the part of our economy which is developed does not stagnate, but that as it grows, uh, it also pulls the underdeveloped part of the economy uh, along. Because if we don't do that, then uh, we'll end up with this huge problem of young people who are neither in institutions of learning or training nor in any job. And, and because they are young, they have energy, uh, we will forever be engulfed in uh, social upheavals because uh, young people in the majority of cases uh, have no fear of anything. Uh, that's the problems even today in the, in the minds because the workforce in the mines consists of young people uh, average ages between 22 and 25 years. And so <clears throat> they, they uh, suffer from all kinds of social pressures and, and have no patience to, uh, in fact, uh, you can never say to them, no, please uh, uh, hurry up slowly, that kind of language. <laughs> they, they don't take kindly to that kind of language. They uh, want to act now and change their conditions now. And so we, we, we as, as Professor Dr. Mo Ibrahim described it, uh, he says that's a social tsunami waiting to be unleashed on us. Uh, and so <clears throat> we, 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 we've got to also explore uh, new avenues. Our country has a long coastline of uh, almost 3,000 uh, kilometers. And yet we do not have a single vessel registered in South Africa. In many countries with even shorter coastlines, uh, foreign vessels are only allowed to dock 
outside the national waters. All cargo is moved by national vessels, and, and it's a source of revenue and source of jobs. But <clears throat> we, we, we don't have uh, a single vessel uh, that is South African. Uh, and so there's an opportunity for us, I think, to look at the marine industry, uh, and it can absorb many, many young people uh, in, in new jobs, uh, as it were. The <coughs> because investors and, and the rest of the world, Professor Parsons uh, alluded to the current economic uh, climate globally, uh, and most of uh, investors have, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, we, we are experiencing these low growth rates of 2%, uh, and we're not alone in that regard. Australia, which uh, is also a mining nation, uh, an economy, has also been experiencing 2.3% uh, economic growth. Uh, and so investors have very low expectation from our side. Uh, and, and if we are to, to change their uh, <coughs> negative uh, outlook, we, we've got to do the kind of stuff that would make them sit <coughs> Uh, precisely because of their low expectations. If we were to uh, do something like uh, increasing the rail lines that link uh, the manganese and iron ore in the Northern Cape to the port of Kuha, to uh, Saldana Bay, uh, and link up the coal belt from Botswana into uh, Waterbeck to Maputo and Richards Bay, increase the rail lines. Uh, it would have a, a catalytic impact. It would open up uh, many other uh, opportunities for, for our economy. And, and to do that, uh, we are members of BRICS. Uh, I suppose we, we, we can source some serious uh, funding from uh, the BRICS partners. Uh, and, and that way inspire uh, investors that uh, we are at least uh, investing in infrastructure which is catalytic. Uh, <clears throat> we may also have to give political expression to the customs union uh, because we have the customs union uh, which uh, accounts for or rather allocates 60% uh, of the national budgets of Lesotho, Swaziland uh, and, and uh, Namibia. And that customs union was part of the formation of the Union of South Africa. 
but, but the, the, the protectorates were excluded from the uh, union as a political entity. I'm saying this because uh, if you go to the northern parts of KwaZulu-Natal, uh, along the border with uh, an area called Katembe between Mozambique, uh, south of Maputo and, and northern KwaZulu-Natal. You'd find there same villagers who have no idea that there is a border there because the borders are not natural borders. And so in the morning they uh, walk over on the other side for peace jobs and others go for uh, drinks on the other side of the border without uh, uh, realizing that they've crossed borders. Stack sprayed in the Eastern Cape and uh, Lesotho, Zastron, same. Uh, Botswana, same. Uh, and, and so, <clears throat> now that we have this smart cut, maybe an idea that uh, uh, in the list of those who must receive this smart cut, we should include uh, King Swati of Swaziland and uh, King Litsie of Lesotho, as well as uh, uh, President Kama in Botswana. And without asking for anything in return, uh, and perhaps take a policy position that every baby born uh, in, in Lesotho and Swaziland and Botswana uh, should be issued with a birth certificate by our home affairs. Uh, because, you see, it would give us uh, data which is centralized. Uh, it will do away with the need for uh, visas and, and having to uh, police these borders, which is a exercise really in futility because uh, all you have to do is to go to Mangaung at the end of the month and look at Vasotu nationals who come to draw their pensions and other social grants. Uh, the same applies to uh, Mbombela Nelspreit in Kumalanga. Uh, same applies to Mahikeng in the northwest. Uh, to realize that uh, it is truly in the interest, economic interest of South Africa for us to integrate and, and have uh, this union uh, as a political entity. Uh, we could have an arrangement like the UK uh, union which consists of these uh, parts. Uh, but it would go a long, long, long way in uh, uh, <coughs> enhancing and consolidating uh, our human resource uh, uh, capital. Now, <clears throat> in, in the view of uh, these structural difficulties that I've uh, painted, uh, in which we, we are trapped as a country, uh, the government has initiated a program of 10 critical outcomes comprising of uh, 
if, if you allow me just to gallop through them, uh, there's 10 of them. I, maybe I shouldn't, yeah. No, I'll, I'll waste your time. Uh, maybe I shouldn't. But that's, that's what government has, has, has decided. And in, in many small ways, uh, we have over a few years sought to achieve uh, these priorities which uh, Professor Parsons has analyzed in uh, a more comprehensive and scholarly fashion, which is, uh, as I said, the most welcome intervention. The uh, Department of Performance Monitoring and Evaluation uh, also published the sixth edition of uh, the Development Indicators uh, 2012 report. And, and these uh, indicators help us as government to track the impact of our policies and interventions using aggregate data. Uh, they employ quantitative measures uh, to track progress or lack thereof uh, in, in implementing policies based on data sourced from research institutions, government databases, as well as official <coughs> statistics. So in this regard, uh, we are once again deeply thankful to uh, Professor Parsons and the academic community for giving us yet another view because as I said, in, in government, we hardly have sufficient time to reflect on, on the impact of our policies and therefore work out what the next step uh, ought to be. Uh, we, we, we are battling also with the uh, instability of the state as a state uh, because over time, uh, we have conflated the political uh, public representative structures with the administration. Uh, in, in fact, uh, one of my colleagues even argues that perhaps at local government level, at local level, we really do not need political parties. We don't need, uh, because it just compounds uh, the problem. At local government level, what we need is administration. Uh, and, and if we are to have, you know, mayoral committees and councillors, they, they should be uh, restricting their work to really four areas, spatial planning, uh, budget allocation, uh, oversight of the administrative arm which handles implementation, and then of course community uh, engagement, only for responsibilities. Now at the moment what we have uh, Councillors are administrators, administrators are politicians. Uh, and so in the process, uh, 
roles are confused and we we don't get any work done hence all these uh, uh, social uh, protests uh, which could be easily avoided if we separate uh, the administration from uh, the structure of uh, political leadership. Uh, and, and of course, we also experience that uh, at provincial as well as national level, because in certain cases, the high turnover of uh, directors general <coughs> tends to destabilize uh, the state uh, and robs the state of institutional memory. Uh, so we should, we should, we should try and, and uh, keep those uh, separately. The, <coughs> my, my very last remark, uh, I've been a bit long-winded. Normally I speak uh, very briefly. Uh, yeah, uh, perhaps just to invite that uh, research and intellectual work uh, should assist government uh, to always stay on the straight and narrow path to what's the implementation of uh, uh, the vision that uh, <coughs> would lead to our economic and, and uh, national uh, development uh, as a country first and foremost and as a region and as a as a continent, where we, with these uh, few words, out uh, once again, uh, thank you very much. Express my my appreciation of uh, the invitation, and I do in fact hope and trust that this book uh, will indeed serve as a shot in the arm of. Uh, our nation uh, and country uh, as, as we strive to uh, address the triple challenges of uh, unemployment, poverty, and uh, inequality. Thank you very much for your attention.